Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another weekly roundup. First of the new year, I am joined by my intrepid co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. Uh, I I love the adjectives. Intrepid is good. And intrepid makes sense, right? You're sitting there all bundled up like uh, you're in isolation in China where they turn off the the heat so there's no air circulating. Uh, My guy in Shanghai, we had a, a, he had to go back to the office. They, They sent him to a hotel three weeks in a hat and parka. They bring him food three times a day, locked him in the hotel. I mean, the craziness of COVID. All right, so we got to do the sock reveal. I know you don't like me climbing, but I got to climb. This is, no, this is important. So you notice red pants have replaced the orange bull market pants. And I got the, mm. uh, the cold storage uh, Bitcoin. Because look, I, I, I thought a lot about the socks this mm. week. Um, mm. And I don't like saying this, and I'm probably going to lose half our listeners because they're going to hate me. We're in crypto winter. And, mm. and it's going to be here for a while. I, I don't think it's going to be like a blizzard, you know, horrible, but, but we're in crypto winter. And, you know, kind of been hinting about this since we started in September, but I didn't want to say it because, mm. you know, my partners and others were all like, no, 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 no. It's, it's just, it's just, it's just moved, right? We're, we're going to have moon, moon November. No, mm. that didn't happen. Oh, we're going to have a Santa Claus rally. No. Oh, it's going to be March. When you start talking like that, that's when you've lost your objectivity. So, mm. yeah, you know, it. I, I, I was also in the camp where I, I thought pretty firmly that the bull market was still in place. I recently, just in the last couple of weeks, I've been like, man, this sentiment reminds me a little bit of uh, <laughs> of of. Back in 2018, 2019, yeah. you know, I, I don't have as many years in markets as you do. So it's, it's always great to get your opinions on these sorts of things. But yeah, it doesn't feel, I mean, this isn't where I expect it to go, but I guess just yeah. to, you know, ponder out loud here. I, I, it doesn't feel though like the bottom is about to drop out of anything, right? Maybe what this next bear market looks like is just sideways chop, which makes everyone depressed basically for the next yeah, however long. Yeah, but here's, long. here's uh, the problem. Again, we, I, I will let you lead because I'm not supposed to lead, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but, um, it's not that that the bottom's going to drop out, but it's bear markets are like uh, rubber balls bouncing down a set of stairs. Mm. Each bounce is higher, right? That's mm. the kinetic energy of, of the rubber ball falling to a lower level. But the end of the trip's a bad place. And, mm. and I think we've seen it over and over. You know, remember we, we talked about this in, in December, you know, literally the mm-hmm. week that the futures ETF was approved. And it was like, yay. And I'm like, no, no, that's horrible for us. Because now mm-hmm. you've created a tool for the big banks who do not want this stuff to drain deposits out of the system to go short. And mm-hmm. when you can short a paper asset instead of the physical asset, it creates the ability for suppression. We've talked about this on previous shows, right? What's happening in gold and, and what JP Morgan does to the price of gold. So, you know, all of it ties back to the Fed handing the you know, ball back to you, which is, I know where you want to go. Um, mm. You know, we, we had an 18 month period where the Fed increased the supply of money 40%. Just mm. mind numbing. And yeah, Bitcoin prices actually rose more than 40%. There was mm. about 
And so the fact that we're now coming back toward that 40% level, gold didn't go up 40%. Think about that for a second. Poor Peter Schiff, right? Gold is flat over that period. He's like, no, that's not possible. Gold, mm. which is perfect money, had to go up as the supply of dollars went up, but it didn't because of futures. And so yeah. lots, of, lots of stuff there to unpack later. Can I, uh, my, my thoughts on this too is I think one of the novel thing that's happened this cycle, right? History never repeats, but it rhymes. Yeah. And, I, and I think already right now, like one thing that I was thinking about over the new year was whatever's happening right now, whether we're in a bull or a bear phase or whatever it is, this doesn't look like what's happened in the past already. Right. Because if, right. if we're still in a bull market, we're drastically underperforming. Uh, if this is a bear, it's weird that it hasn't fallen out faster than this. So I was already kind of thinking, this doesn't remind me of anything that we've been through in the past. I think one of the things that that's happened is the, the whole thing that kicked this whole bull, bull market off was this meme of Fed money printing. Yep. Right? We're like, there's all this fiscal stimulus, currency is being debased at a record level, people pile into Bitcoin, the liquidity from Bitcoin flows into other alts, et cetera. And I think what needed to happen there was the transition from monetary to fiscal spending, which we like sort of got, right? So there was this record QE, QE forever, uh, super loose, uh, you know, um, on the monetary side of things with what the Fed was doing. And then Treasury needed to pick up the baton. Yep. And they kind of did, right? We got this latest uh, $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill, but it was way less than the market was expecting, the 5 or $6 trillion infrastructure bill. It doesn't look like this is going to be a repeated thing. We have Joe Manchin... Uh, kind of stepping in and, and saying, no, thank you. So I think what, what happened is that the market is just worried about liquidity conditions and we didn't get the amount of fiscal that we thought we were going to get. That has led to a weaker Bitcoin, weaker gold, and I think you're just seeing the runoff effects of that in crypto. Yeah, and that, now, right, you're seeing the impact of deleveraging. And right. look, this this is the, the antithesis of Ray Dalio's beautiful deleveraging. Uh, this is a nasty deleveraging. And mm. yeah, I've said this before and I'll say it again. And I tweeted out, you know, leverage can never make a bad investment good. Mm. Never. You buy a shitty house and you lever it up, you're <laughs> going to lose a lot of money. <laughs> right? Mm. Now, the problem with leverage is it can, on occasion and often does, make a good investment bad. Like you can have the yeah. best house on the best block in the best neighborhood. And if you put too much leverage and you get a quote unquote margin call, the housing is, you know, the margin calls don't really happen as quickly, but um, you have a big stock account and you're levered. And I mean, imagine owning Peloton, which you thought was a great stock, right? Great company, great product, you know, great following. That sucker's down 80%. If you had any sort of margin jet on that, you're done. You're out. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's crazy about those, like those, uh, you know, pandemic darlings or whatever, zoom Peloton, whatever, those things have completely done a round trip. Like yes. go back and look at yes. their price. And, uh, they basically gone from, uh, like may of 2020, they've, you know, they've gone up like 200%. They're all the way back. And it's down a perfect normal distribution. It's actually, as I, I tweeted this out this morning, um, this, this Twitter friend, he's not a friend friend. I mean, we never met, but he's Twitter friend over in Sweden. Sven had this great thing about, you know, ARK, uh, ARKK is changing their ticker to Titanic. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's actually pretty good. Um, that's really that's good. Funny. And, yeah. and if you look at uh, Kathy Wood's inflows, they look the same way, right? And people, human beings, do two things really, really well. We buy what we wish we would have bought, and we sell what we're about to need. Mm -hmm. and, and it's spectacular. 
In fact, here's a crazy thing. The ARC Genomics Fund mm-hmm. has a negative return. The, mm. the return, quote unquote, is positive. But the cash, more cash has been lost by people who came into the fund than have gone into the fund. There's a negative, a net negative. How does that work? Destruct, because people buy at the top and they sell at the bottom. So when the, when the big returns on the fund early were earned, it was on very little capital. And ARKK actually is down, it's like a, I think at the peak, it was a 28 or $29 billion fund. And uh, maybe even bigger than that. And net net, it's only got like 40% of people in the fund are positive. 60 plus percent of the people in that fund are underwater. And those people who bought that on leverage again, if you bought it in a Robinhood account with leverage and you already tried to buy options on it, it works when it works and then it stops working and it goes really wrong. And that's why I got the red pants on, right? You know, the sea of red, blood in the streets. Um, now, Lord Rothschild was right. That is the time to buy. But mm-hmm. falling knives should fall all the way to the floor. Trying to catch mm-hmm. them you will lose fingers. Let it hit the floor, bounce around a little while, stop moving, then grab it by the handle. So it's too early. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so maybe that's a good transition to actually get into some of these charts then. We can specifically talk, because we're recording this on uh, January the 7th, so we had Fed Minutes come out uh, a couple of days ago. So look, it's looking like to summarize what's going on from the minutes, and I want to get your opinions here, Mark. It looks like the Fed is starting to tighten. Right, so now uh, pricing in a probability of four separate rate hikes in 2022. Obviously, markets didn't like this at all. Uh, if you're watching this via video, you can see we've got the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq uh, up here. Uh, the the S&P 500 fell uh, almost two percent on the news. The Nasdaq was down over three percent on the news. Uh, you anticipated me. Uh, so we've got the Ark Innovation ETF, which is down about seven percent. Bitcoin down almost six percent. Obviously, Bitcoin, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, internet situation over in Kazakhstan and some of the uh, hash power that went offline. I think that had an impact on pricing. But overall, definitely a very hawkish tilt from the Fed. I think what they want now is for tapering to be, they want to accelerate the pace of tapering. They want that to be done by March when they want to start doing their first rate hike. Mark, what what was your takeaway from the Fed minutes and how markets reacted? Uh, It's a giant trial balloon. They know they they can't do this, right? They absolutely know they Mm -hmm. can't do this. But they're trying, right? They're actually trying to do what's right. I mean, short-term rates have equaled the rate of inflation for 140 years up until mm. a few years ago. And then that correlation broke. I mean, it was perfect correlation forever. And, and that's why the return on cash was always zero. Whatever your cash rate was, that was the, the inflation rate. And so you, you had no real return on cash. And then in order to make a real return, you had to take one of four risks. And take credit risk, equity risk, illiquidity risk, or use leverage. And so now we have negative real returns on cash. And, and that's insane. So we have the loosest monetary policy ever. Like worse than the global financial crisis, worse than the 14 oil collapse. I mean, it's, it's the loosest ever. Now, that is unsustainable. It's like giving you know, a heroin addict just increasing amounts where eventually there's just not enough that you can inject into someone's veins. And so I, I really think the Fed is, I used to say Fed in a box, hashtag Fed in a box. 
And mm-hmm. uh, then again, a friend of mine tweeted something out the other day that I thought was great. They said, you know, Fed's really in a pickle. So now I've changed it to Fed in a jar. <laughs> because <laughs> they're, they're in a jar and they're, they're mm-hmm. not getting out. You know, this is the old mm-hmm. uh, Prince Albert in a can joke. You know, hey, mm-hmm. Prince Albert can't wait, let him out. Um, so they tried to say they're going to tighten, that they're going to raise rates. Zero chance, right? We already saw Q4 GDP get revised downward. Q1 is going to be ugly. I mean, ugly. Mm. Could it be negative? I won't go that far, but it's going to be ugly. Um, earnings. Whew, earnings. You know, the base effects of 2020 are gone. You got real comps. They're going to be ugly. And, and you've seen it in these high, high growth, high valuation companies are just starting to collapse. And, you know, what's really crazy is, uh, here, I'm just anticipating all your great charts. Um, it's the alligator jaws, baby. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, look at the problem with this chart, right? What you're looking at is, is earnings estimates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's rate of change of earnings estimates uh, relative to the price of the S&P, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... The problem is, um, if you look at at the uh, 2000 rollover, you know, earnings mm-hmm. collapsed, went negative, and the stock market went down, right, the way it's supposed to. Then the gold financial crisis. Now, it was interesting thing about the gold financial crisis. Earnings started to roll over way before the gold financial crisis. And that was the whole, oh, no, no, you don't understand. You know, we're the masters of the universe, and we've got all these great, great products. And uh, then earnings went way negative when they realized, oh, those were all a lie. Those were just fake. So mm. massive. I mean, the biggest negative earnings uh, and the market went down a lot. And then we started this thing called QE. And we basically have turned the dollar into toilet paper. And the problem with this chart, well, so many charts. One, it's a long-term chart that's not on log scale, which... <laughs> You should, it's I know chart that's true. crime. It's a yeah, chart total crime. chart crime. Um, and you didn't make the chart. And and you're, I love Yuren. I, I think he's fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. Yuren Timmer. Um, I think he's fantastic, but it's still a chart crime. And mm-hmm. this is denominated in toilet paper. If you denominated this in gold, it would be a flat line with some wiggles since 1996. And so what you see is the last three times, look at the earnings drop. In, in 2011. I mean, that's a massive earnings drop and the market went straight up. How is that possible? Mm-hmm. And then you had another earnings drop um, back uh, with, with COVID and the market went down for a couple of days, like it, like it should have. Um, and what again, you'll notice is like in 2006, seven, earnings started to go down way before the actual COVID crisis. I mean, companies kind of saw what was happening around the world. Uh, and now, you know, earnings have started to roll over. Yeah, you had the big recovery, quote unquote, in earnings that was, again, base effect and you're dividing by a smaller number. So the number looks bigger. But there's, in absence of more stimulus, which is the antithesis of what the minutes just said, um, it's going to be an ugly, ugly, ugly year for earnings. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I, I think the reason I, I, um, 
uh, chart crime aside, the reason I kind of like this chart is because there are a couple of things that we're looking at here, right? So the, the valuation of stock markets, basically there are two inputs there. It's uh, you know the absolute level of earnings and then the valuation that stocks are getting at any given time. I like that he has, um, for folks who aren't following along, there's, he's basically got the acceleration right of earnings here. So you can kind of see these like peaks and troughs, whereas earnings tend to accelerate, decelerate, accelerate, decelerate. You know, 1985 to 2000, you can see that those would roughly go, you know, earnings would kind of peak at about 21% acceleration. They'd, you know, go slightly negative, right, uh, you know, at a certain point too. And, and, that, and that pattern basically held uh, for about, what is that, uh, 20 or so years. Yeah. Post-GFC, you had a colossal acceleration in earnings, commensurate probably, right, with the first, you know, round of QE that we really did here Just- in the U.S., and morphine, now you saw right into the veins. I mean, just stimulus. morphine, right? Exactly. Um, it looked like it normalized actually for the next uh, kind of earnings um, acceleration that was in 2018, and now we've seen 40% earnings acceleration. Uh, you know, post COVID. You know, if you look at this chart, right, you, you could very easily say, okay, earnings are going to start uh, decelerating now pretty aggressively. They could go pretty negative, right? Because when they go more positive, the, the, the deceleration tends to go pretty negative. Yeah, pretty bearish uh, for earnings overall here. I think he's done a pretty good job of laying this out. And valuations, which we haven't shown here, are also at an all-time high. So it doesn't really paint a super rosy picture. It's, it's, I don't know. I Look, I love Apple. And I just mm-hmm. I just tweeted out the the uh, the video of Steve Jobs from you know, 25 years ago talking about the purpose of Apple and his you know theme, think different. Right, you know, mm-hmm. our our byline at at uh, Morgan Creek is think differently, I mean, alternative thinking about investing. I, I didn't do that because of Steve Jobs, but I was like, yeah, I mean, think thinking differently is the only way you make outsized returns. The guy is an absolute genius, and he's sorely missed. And and if he were still alive, I wouldn't have this problem where my my camera sticks out and I can't put my phone on the table because it'll break the camera. I mean, who designed <laughs> that? That's absolutely insane. But um, anyway. So I'm sure there's a reason, but it's bad. Um, but the, the thing is, there's no way it's worth $3 trillion. Right? They had the mm. same net income, okay? Same net income uh, as 2015, okay? Not the same revenues, but the same net income, not the same earnings per share because they cut the number of shares through buybacks, which is just financial engineering, but the same net income as six years ago and the multiple doubled, went from 15 to 30. Why would you pay 30 times earnings for a company whose income isn't growing? That's mm-hmm. insane. But it's because it's 7% of the index and every dollar of passive money that goes into the index has to buy 7% of Apple. And so mm-hmm. what we've got is bad breath. And bad breath is death to bull markets. You cannot have five, six, seven stocks making all the returns and everything else starting to go down. And now the rest are starting to go down fast. And that alligator jaws or dragon jaws, whatever you want to call them, they will close. And yeah. So I, I tried to um, get – this is me trying to do – I was trying to actually – so Lynn Alden actually uh, leave it to her to just – Tweet great stuff. So she, um, I didn't plan on going down this direction, but like she, she actually tweeted out this uh, this great chart of the top six companies, uh, like the largest six companies by market cap yep. on the S and P. Apple being in there. One thing that is is actually pretty interesting about them is that their net debt position. So the amount of cash they have, uh, 
versus long-term debt is actually positive. Yes. Or, or sorry, net, yes. So, so they have more cash than they yeah. do long-term yeah. debt. Everyone except Apple, actually. Um, but that, I mean, it's slightly negative position there. So, you know, you could you could look at that as bullish, or you could say, mm, actually, you know, maybe they're positioning positioning themselves for something. But well, I do you could also say that if they saw good things to invest in, they would be spending that money because they make zero on cash, really negative right. after inflation because, you know, they haven't bought Bitcoin like Sailor. Um, so, you know, you're holding cash, you're making 50 base points, 100 base points. Maybe they do some fancy stuff and get out to one or 2%. But if inflation's running at four, now inflation isn't really running at four and inflation is going to collapse after the base effects wear off. But if it's running at three and a half or 4% and not five or six or 7%, then you're still losing money. So I don't know. I I am very, uh, I, you've heard me use this before, right? Where the head goes, the body follows from my high school wrestling coach. And the head, which is the equal weighted index, is going down. And the body, Fang Man, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, uh, Apple, NVIDIA, are going with it. And look, I love NVIDIA as a company. I think that's going to, they're going to do amazing things with the next generation of chips. I hope they buy this new company we're investing in that makes this new generation uh, cloud security chip. Um, but man, I, I think short term, I wouldn't want to own a lot of it, particularly on leverage. Yeah, definitely, definitely got to be careful with leverage. I, I do want to get your opinion though on basically Bitcoin um, and what's going on with the Fed. So, this chart uh, comes to us from John Street Capital. Or let, me, let me set situation here to back up a little bit what I was saying uh, before, just about the transition from monetary to fiscal. So again, this chart comes to us from Lynn Alban. You're looking at private sector loans, government deficits, and broad money growth. So you know what what needed to happen. So basically, I think what this this chart is showing here in general is you've got government deficits, uh, and that is peaking at the same time that um, broad money growth is peaking. And I would encourage everyone to. I, I'm really starting to. I listened to this great interview with. Uh, Joseph Wang, uh, who's a former senior trader at the Federal Reserve, and Jack Farley, who's really starting to make me think that actually the real money printer, uh, you know, despite how we talk about it on the show sometimes, is not at the Fed, but actually at Treasury. And real money creation actually comes from deficit spending in many cases, yes. uh, which kind of is backed up uh, by this chart. Um, so, you know, John Street, so the reason I give that context is because John Street Capital put out this great, he's trying to basically, uh, you know, put together some data on how correlated is. Uh, the activities of the Federal Reserve and Bitcoin. So he's got kind of rate hikes, um, you know, as one input and expansion and contraction of the balance sheet as another input. And, you know, you can kind of draw your own conclusions here. It might be a little bit small, um, you know, but basically over on the left, you know, what we're looking at is, uh, you know, every starting in January of 2018, going through to December of 2020, uh, we've got the start and end of the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And you can kind of see the net expansion there in one chart. And then you can also see what Bitcoin did. And to summarize, basically, what you're seeing is there's not basically any correlation in between expansion and contraction of the balance sheet and what's going on with the price of Bitcoin. You can also see uh, over on the right side of things, rate hikes, uh, the amount of increase um, and where rates basically were. And that doesn't seem very correlated with the price of Bitcoin either. Right. So the, the reason I kind of bring this up is, hey, Mark, I want to get your opinion on basically on how you connect what the Federal Reserve is doing with the price of Bitcoin, because now that, you know, there's this larger macro crowd in Bitcoin, they kind of say this is all the Fed and Bitcoin moves based on uh, longer term business cycles and all that kind of stuff. And 
this data doesn't really seem to support that. So I'd love to get your input here just in the wake of these, these new Fed minutes that came out. Just how important is the Fed when it comes to the price of Bitcoin? Yeah, so yeah, I should I should just beat on this because um, I tried to hire Justin. Uh, he's a domer uh, like me, and um, and he turned me down and went to Pilata. Uh, so I should just say anything Justin does is wrong. I'm just kidding around. I I would hire him now because um, I think he's he's fantastic. And um, so here's the thing: uh, the problem is you need a lag factor. Uh, it takes time for money to flow through the system. So the, 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 the timing of the Fed expansion or contraction of balance sheet has a, has a lag period of, of how it gets into the, the system through bank lending and, and the, the, the banks themselves borrowing from the Fed and buying, you know, treasury, even, I mean, buying stocks, even though they're not supposed to do that, they do. So I would, I would say this, this regression needs to be run with, with a lag. And I don't know if it's 12 months, 18 months, or, or six months. But there's, if you did a lag period, you'd get a better correlation. Hmm. We did have an interesting debate this Monday uh, with my guys who... Um, there's a guy who's been trying to make a case last year that uh, Bitcoin was actually positively correlated with interest rates. Which is just a ridiculous... I think it's just a ridiculous concept. And and we had a really heated debate. And they're like, well, look, look, look what happened in, in this one month period. I'm like, oh my God, you can't do a regression on one month. That that is that yeah. is non-statistically significant. I said, yes, interest rates last year went up 45%. The 10 year went from you know 1.3 to 1.7 or whatever. Okay. And Bitcoin went up 60%. Yeah, it was perfectly correlated. No, right? Yes, there was a, uh, a a temporal correlation a couple times during the year, but but they're not correlated in that Bitcoin is priced in dollars. <laughs> one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? The only reason that it moves is because we price it in something else. We price it in yen, right. we price it in euros, we price it in dollars, right? There's never been a bear market in Bitcoin in bolivars, in Venezuela, right? The price goes straight up because the bolivar's gone straight down. So that's a very different price for Bitcoin than, or in Argentinian pesos, same thing. So the reality is, I've said this for a long time, Bitcoin rising, a portion of it is the dollar getting worse. Just like stocks rising, a portion of it is the dollar getting worse because we're denominating in a devaluing asset. And so the idea that you can have an inverse correlation to that for Bitcoin, nonsensical. And Mm -hmm. I think the point they were trying to make, I think, was that, oh, no, no, this is a safe haven asset and people are going to shift out of it into a shift out of equity markets as they collapse, as rates rise, into Bitcoin. It would be awesome if that were the case, but that ain't the case. Um, but there are 200 million of us believers, right? Sign behind me, 200 million believers. And talking to ourselves, we can convince ourselves that it's a safe haven asset and that we want to put our money there when everything else is going to shit. Fine. But the other seven point whatever billion people on the planet 
half of which can't even watch this show because they don't have internet. It's a frightening stat. Um, mm -hmm. So they don't, they don't care. And what has to happen for continued rise in value of the Bitcoin network is for usage and wallets and hash power and all these things to keep rising. And hash power had been rising up until Kazakhstan. And this, so this could be a, a temporal thing with, with the 15% offline, it'll come back. Um, but that's a long rambling way of saying, uh, I absolutely believe that part of the bull market in Bitcoin over the last few years has been the devaluation of the currency and, and a huge amount of it post uh, COVID. And now what you've got is the situation where we're, we're in this, this halving cycle and people say, well, the halving cycle doesn't exist because there's so much demand from institutions. There are a lot of institutions talking about it. Novo was on TV yesterday saying, oh, I know lots of institutions that are definitely going through the process and they're on the verge. Not, not untrue, very true. We are the same way. We're talking to some very large pension funds, some sovereign wealth, and they will eventually get there, but they're not gonna get there soon. And they're, they're not gonna buy enough, uh, even the big ones, to really matter. And so what we need is the next billion, right? What we need is the next billion people to realize that Bitcoin is hard money and it is a better form of money. And that will happen. But the value, I mean, you know, we should do something. We should have Tim Peterson join us. I love Tim uh, from N Squared Crypto. And he's like the only guy who's been sober through this whole thing about all these parabolic price charts. And he said, look, guys, the ones that were created in 2014, they made a mistake, right? Their decay factor for the rate of growth of the network was too high. And so that's where the, you know, the plan B and all these others, they, they came up with that $100,000 number. And I was right there, I was, I was looking at it. But the more I dug into Tim's work, I realized that the, the decay factor puts us, it's the same trajectory, it's the same shape. It's just at a lower level. We still get right. to the same place. It just takes more time. And so that level is right around 40K and as fair value of the network today, not 100K. And at that level, we're around fair value. The problem is we can go below fair value if too many people who bought on leverage get liquidated. That's what happens in bear markets. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day -day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. 
And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. I have a, I have a couple more more thoughts about this, and maybe we can transition to because you you alluded to the internet outage in Kazakhstan, and I wanted to talk about that too. But I, I think a couple of different things are happening here too. One, uh, markets are forward looking, even not in stocks. They're forward looking in uh, assets like bonds, uh, real estate, and gold as well. And one thing that that stood out to me actually, if you look at how Bitcoin performed in the 1970s, uh, you know, Bitcoin has this inverse relationship with real rates, right? Because it protects your your purchasing power. Uh, Gold actually had its best run at the very beginning uh, when when people were really worried about real rates. When real rates got deeply negative, gold didn't perform well, ironically, because the the thought at the time was, we can't go any lower from here. So so everyone should just remember that, right? Markets are forward-looking in in all assets, which I thought was really interesting. And if you connect that to what's going on now, okay, we've actually had negative real rates for a little while. But guess what? The period of worry about those real rates – has kind of already passed, right? And a lot of people, I think tr- team transitory, at least for a certain period of time, is going to prove out to be correct. And until we get more massive stimulus and money printing and fiscal, then I, I don't think I, that's a hard environment, I think, for Bitcoin to do well in, to be totally honest. Uh, I think the second thing, too, is uh, you know the, the framework that institutions have for buying Bitcoin is much more sophisticated than retail investors. It's not just HODL, number go up type thing, right? So I think these guys are either thinking about it from a momentum or a value uh, kind of framework, right? And you've got to understand, are you, are you buying momentum? Or are you buying yep. value? Yep. I think uh, this comes, uh, I'm piggybacking here off Avi Fellman uh, from Block Tower Strategy, but you know, I think it's a really valid point. Uh, over the last two years, Bitcoin has basically been running up, right? So maybe a lot of people came in and they said, hey, I'm buying this because I believe in the long-term yeah. store value. Maybe it was just maybe. a momentum trade for them, right? So then you have to then you have to ask yourself, well, where is Bitcoin? If they're not buying momentum anymore, because there doesn't look like there's any momentum to be had, what is value for institutional investors? Yep. I don't know, but it's probably not 50K, right? I don't think there are many people who are like, this is a value play at 50K. There yep. are some people who think that, but not a lot, and certainly not on the institutional side. So yeah, I think until you get either a resurgence uh, in momentum or people decide, people will set a floor for what they think yeah. uh, value is for Bitcoin. But I, I feel like that's what's going on. I know, so, you're 100% right. And and that is the nature of all assets and institutional allocators, right? I was one for, I played one on TV for many years and uh, <laughs> I now have a lot of them as clients and, and some really, really big ones. And that is our job, right? An allocator's job is to determine which side of that spectrum you want to play. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with either side, right? The S&P 500 is a MOMO index. Mm-hmm. It's what it is. It's not passive. It's slow, active, and it's a momentum index. It buys more of things as they go up. As they go up, yep. That is a momentum strategy. It is nothing more than a momentum strategy. All cap-weighted indexes are momentum strategies, and they work great when liquidity is expanding. And that's not good or bad. It just is a fact. When liquidity is not expanding, those types of strategies get crushed, right? Mm. 2001. 2008, right now, look at the last five weeks as the fear of liquidity draining from the system, what happened to the biggest MOMO indices, 
crushed and they could get crushed more. So that decision, value or momentum is really, really important. Now, the funny thing is I've never met a growth stock manager who said they paid too much for stocks. So they think their value at, at, you know, mm-hmm. at a growth. And I've never met a value manager who said he was buying companies that weren't growing. So, so there's this kind of weird in the middle. It's kind of like left and right or Republicans Democrats. There's no such thing, right? There's in and out and everybody has really got elements of centrist. I don't hear a lot of people on the left talking about really extreme. Now there are some really crazy extreme people. I don't hear a lot of people on the right, but most people like I, I myself, I am absolutely positively liberal I guess, for for lack of a better term, in the way I think about social safety nets. And I believe that there should be things to help people who really need help. I absolutely believe that that's the role and function of of a well-organized government. But I am way on the other side on conservatism, on things related to taxation, right? Taxation is theft. Inflation is theft. And, and, you know, why do I get taxed multiple times on my capital? I get taxed when I earn it. I get taxed when I go to spend it. I get taxed when I buy a piece of property, when I sell that price of property. So there's all kinds of things that, that you, can, you can share. But value, I believe, is, is genetic, right? Mm-hmm. You're either a value person or you're not. Because it's really hard to be a value person in a world that is about momentum, because value is not a good story. Nobody likes value stories, right? You, you know what's funny about you saying that, Mark? I actually feel like I'm, I have the genetic thing for value. Of course you I'm do. In this world of, of momentum. That's why we get along. I mean, you are yeah. absolutely, we are absolutely brothers from other mothers. I mean, yeah. that is absolutely true. And a hundred percent. And again, it's, it doesn't make you a bad person if you're not in the value tribe. Because growth, there look, I have this friend. And he's way richer than me. I mean, he's awesome. And he's one of my, my favorite firms that I've invested with for years. And I tell the story all the time. He's a seer, right? He sees things in the future. And when Google went public, right, it immediately went up. And my value friends were like, oh my gosh, this, this is so overvalued. And it's going to go from 100 to 50. And uh, so I'm out in California with Glenn. And uh, he used to work with Roger McNamee and, and, you know, and just long story short, he says, Mark, are you kidding me? Google's me a thousand dollars. You're an idiot. How could you even say that out loud? It's like, no, you don't understand. You don't understand that this is not about the value today. This is about the growth in the future and what they're going to do and how they're going to redefine search and how, and like, well, yeah, whatever, Glenn. Now, thankfully, yeah. I've invested with him for years because he's awesome at seeing the future and being great. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm not that guy. And people say, well, then yeah. why do you invest in Bitcoin? I'm like, well, I'm becoming that guy because I have friends like Glenn who've helped me. Well, one thing, I'm a value guy at heart, except with technological infrastructure. And we've talked about this over and over, 54, 68, 82, 96, 2010, 2024. I believe that now, and I've made a ton of money, not personally me doing it, but investing in people in the venture capital world that invest in these technological infrastructure. Everyone's heard my story about Google and how much money we made for Notre Dame. Uh, 
And, and our venture funds are doing really nicely because we've backed some really extraordinary founders. But I am deep in my heart and it's cost me a lot of money. And it's okay. But it's also yeah, made me a lot I, of money. I mean, I bought a lot of good things on sale. So, Yeah, I agree. I want to I wanna get your thoughts on Kazakhstan as well. We've got yeah. two stories here and I, I know we're, we're winding out on time, but... Uh, we're going to talk well, about Kazakhstan on the internet outage. I could go on. <laughs> I know, me too, me too. Uh, I, we, we got the Kazakhstan uh, internet outage, and I want to talk about OpenSea because they are just uh, completely crushing on fire it. right now. Uh, absolutely crushing it. But um, let's, let's just start with uh, Kazakhstan. I thought this is a pretty interesting story. So first of all, uh, you know, there's a humanitarian aspect of this, which I'm, I'm not commenting on. I want to get your thoughts specifically on what's going on with um, with the internet situation and the impact on mining. But just to give everyone a uh, an overview, there's, there's a lot of... Um, protests that are going on in Kazakhstan. There's a relatively new president. Uh, I'm going to butcher his name, Kasim Jamar uh, Tokayev. Uh, so he ordered, there are basically, I mean, th there are real violent protests that are going on in the city. I Crazy. mean, there are burnings of buildings. Uh, yeah. Handing out guns, people, I mean, literally firefights. It's, it's Handing out guns, scary. firefights, hun hundreds and hundreds injured, uh, multiple people murdered, police officers murdered. Uh, you know, the, the president has called in a, the the aid of Russia, right, which is a whole other geopolitical thing. Um, I saw this morning that there was a news headline that um, they gave the order to shoot on site. Cra crazy stuff. So, crazy. I, you know, heart goes out to the folks uh, in Kazakhstan for sure. But w one of the, the side effects of these riots that went on is that they ordered that the Internet would be shut down. This was temporary, but something that's happened in the post-China uh, crackdown on Bitcoin mining is that a lot of that hash power had actually migrated to Kazakhstan. Now, what I what I read when I was researching this is that people thought about that as a temporary home on its way to other locations. But for the period of time, there was a significant amount of hash power to the point that actually it took off for a temporary period of time an estimated 15% of Bitcoin miners around the world. Yep. And that comes to us from Kevin Zhang of Foundry, which is pretty wild, honestly. So th that, was, that was also happening at a time where the market was kind of panicking over everything that we were talking about previously in the show, which is tightening of their balance sheet for rate hikes coming out in 2022. So that led to Bitcoin falling to over 8% for a period of time. I mean, what are your takeaways here? I guess when I think about this story, in, in one sense, it's pretty resilient, right? Like 15%, almost 20% of the the security power, the hash power of the network going offline and everything still functions correctly. In another sense, I think there are still bottlenecks. I, I still don't think we've settled when it comes to where mining is going to end up in the world. I think this is pretty bullish, actually, for American mining. People are now looking at, hey, uh, I get it. It's low-cost uh, energy stuff here in Kazakhstan, but maybe that is not worth it because of certain political realities about developing nations. Maybe it's just worth it to pay for the higher rates and be in the United States where we know there aren't going to be internet outages. And I suspect that some of this hash power and you know, computing resources that found their way in Kazakhstan will probably find their way to the United States. And from what I understand, Kazakhstan is already cracking down on the mining that they've seen migrate there. So yeah. that was a, that was a big overview, I guess. My thoughts, but what was what your no? Take look, I, I I I agree with with all of the the sentiments in that um, the migration of hash power globally is absolutely a sign of resiliency. Uh, you know, we have this amazing redundant network, a network that has now been up for 13 years. Happy 13th birthday. Um, you know, it's, I love, I love January. It's like, it's like my, my first week of January is like this birthday celebration, you know, plethora for me. So I got, I got, you know, the Bitcoin birthday, 
uh, on the third, and then I got my son's birthday tomorrow, and I got my wife's birthday, my 11-year-old's birthday tomorrow, and then my, my wife on, on Sunday. So uh, lots of birthday celebrations. And then you got the Feast of the Epiphany and all this stuff. So, um, But I, I think the other part that you bring up that you know, I don't worry about it at all is temporal or temporary crackdowns on minors, whether it's literally, you know, turn off the internet and make it hard, uh, or whether it's, okay, you can't do this anymore like China. It's temporal because there is an economic incentive, right? There is an economic incentive for people to create uh, security for the Bitcoin network. It's the most powerful computing network in the history of mankind. It is, I think, the future of money as we know it. And therefore, the incentives are going to continue to be in place for that, that migration to find its, its highest and best use. And the highest and best use is, to your point, not just cost. It's not just weather. It, there are all kinds of, I'm sure people have seen the video of, of the, you know, the Russian one with the snow that got through the roof and, and all over the miners. And yeah, that keeps them cold, but probably causes you know, problems uh, as it melts. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's like squeezing the air in a balloon. It'll just go someplace else. <clears throat> and one of the cool things about technology is the continued evolution and innovation. And I said, we're investing in this, this chip company that, that, you know, has what we think is a better ASIC. And if it turns out that they do, they're going to sell a lot of them to people. And it'll be the first quote unquote American uh, ASIC, which is kind of cool because then you'd have to buy Chinese ASICs. Um, And I think those types of things that people engineer better ways, they've they've also got a design for, this is amazing, uh, to bring cryptography into the cloud. So one of the challenges now is you put all your stuff into the cloud and the cloud gets hacked and it gets stolen and you have all these breaches and all this stuff and you're dependent on these singular you know, companies like AWS and Azure, well, if you could actually secure directly in the cloud using a new technology, how big is that? That's big. So there's going to be all of this innovation that happens. And so in the short term, absolutely. But see, this is the thing about about markets is everybody says, oh, you know, look at this this trend. Like you're looking at the last five days or the last five weeks. The long-term trend actually in Bitcoin is really good. The 13-year trend is amazing. Every year except one, we've had higher lows, which means the network has expanded. The hash power has expanded. The number of users, the number of wallets, all that has expanded. In the short run, you can have disruptions. You can have people say, oh, I'm out. I got stopped out of my you know 100 times levered position at Bitfinex. I'm out. Good riddance, right? Those are not the builders. Those are the, you know, those are the remora. You know, the shark, the whale shark is going like this and those, you know, the remora come in and get a feast and then they leave. And so I'm, that's a weird winding way of saying uh, occasional stresses in the system are a good thing. It's, it's kind of like bear markets. Bear markets are not bad. Is, oh, no. they're, they're good. No. They're cleansing. They're good. We need the bear markets to cleanse the bad stuff. Right? We need the over-levered speculators out. We need the shaky miners in bad places out. What we need is resilience and robustness. 
robustness in the network, robustness in the user base, and that all happens during bear markets. And so what a bear market is, it's a time to accumulate, at lower prices by the way, a bigger ownership position, because all that matters is the ownership position in the network. The daily price, just a liar. Right, can I get your thoughts on why that was a little surprising to me. I was reading about this, uh, that the Kazakhstani government doesn't want Bitcoin miners. I, I feel like I understood it with China, nope. but I'm not sure why why Kazakhstan wouldn't want that. Um, the only thing I can come up with is uh, they have ties to, to Russia. Russia has a plan, right. like China, to have a CBDC. You know, China, I think, will be first. Russia, I think, will be second. We'll lag way behind. Uh, I, th I think that's the only thing I can come up with, right? Which is yeah. if your goal is to avoid deposits leaving the banking system. And so this could be part of it with Kazakhstan too. And it's actually why you're seeing it in the U.S. Remember, we, we've talked about this is, you know, 2009 to 2015 was the first they ignore you. Then 15 to 21 was, then they laugh at you. 21, unfortunately, probably to 25 or 26 is then they fight you. And so countries with weak banking systems do not have the capacity to see deposits leave the banking system into crypto. Hmm. They can't, they can't afford it, right? Their banks will collapse. And, and this is, you know, Russia had a really weak banking system because the oligarchs were stealing the money and pulling, putting it offshore. And Putin said, no, 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 bring the money back. I need it in my bank, spare bank, and I won't put you in jail and I won't ask any questions uh, and everything will be good. And they got 300 billion back and they recapitalize the banking system. And I think that's part of it is countries with weaker areas have a choice, right? You can, you can embrace new businesses, new ideas. Like for me, if I was the government, I would say, yes, bring it and I will tax you. An operating tax that will help me create. And I think that's why El Salvador is, is kind of thinking it that way. Is they're like, this could actually improve our GDP. This could actually improve development capital into, you know, someone's going to have to put money to build out the volcano. I, I, I don't know if it'll actually happen or not, but if they do, I mean, that's real money. It's like, why did Venezuela allow oil companies to come and invest for a while? Then they didn't, which makes no sense to me. Yeah. You want the money to come in to build out your infrastructure to take advantage of, of your, your natural resources. It's why, it's why the America became America, right? We let everybody come from everywhere and bring their knowledge and their information and their innovation and, and their ideas and their capital, their foreign capital. And then we became this great superpower. What you yeah. want as a country that has long-term strategic thinkers is in migration of talent and resources to build on your resources. I agree. Yeah, it's just a funny thing. It's It seems like clear as data. I mean, this is an industry. Uh, this It's also like, it's capital intensive. You need a lot of workers in a mining <laughs> right. facility. Uh, it, it would create jobs. It's actually not like these software companies where it's like 30 people at Uniswap run a, you know, 20, yeah. it's, it would actually be, I don't know, but- um, you Need uh, a lot of electricians. Right, yeah, yeah, that you do. So last story I wanna cover with you is actually OpenSea. So OpenSea, uh, one of the runaway successes uh, in terms of just a pure infrastructure company. So they've raised $300 million uh, at a $13 billion valuation. 
you know, marquee set of investors here, uh, you know, Kotu, uh, you know, Paradigm, et cetera. So this is their Series C round, I believe. Um, you know, apparently, I think they were trying to raise at a slightly higher valuation of $15 billion, but they settled on a slightly lower figure. You know, uh, th- this company is just absolutely murdering it. Uh, so, you know, there's a couple different dimensions here. So I, I heard these are unfounded, right? I haven't looked at any data, but this is what I've heard, right? So this is what I'm just going to say. Uh, billion dollar run rate, 97% operating margins. What? what? Oh, my God. Right? I don't have access to actually this data. I haven't seen any numbers, right? I, so I don't know what the trend looks like either. And, you know, we were talking about this beforehand. I'm sure those margins are going to collapse yeah. at a certain point, right? They're going to need to hire more people. The fees on OpenSea are high, baby. They are freaking high. And they deserve to be because, you know, if they were the first there, why wouldn't they capture it? But, uh, you know, pretty phenomenal success story. I saw they were acquiring as well. Axios reported $100 million acquisition of Dharma. Uh, so mm-hmm. a wallet. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. they're looking to expand out into. And I think the big question for a lot of these NF- these exchanges, whether you're NFT exchange, regular exchange, is how are you starting to interact with DeFi and, and people who want to live their lives on-chain and stuff like that. There was the SOS airdrop token the other day, which is basically like, hey, we're building a decentralized OpenSea. Mm, okay. Uh, maybe. Yeah, but and, 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 and it, it Maybe. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, centralization gets a bad rap. I mean... Centralization in certain areas is really important, right? We just came off of the not your keys, not your coins day and get your Bitcoin back in, in your wallet. I've said this before. My, my 83-year-old dad, never going to hold his own keys. I don't want him to hold his own keys. I don't want to do he it. Shouldn't. And, and he shouldn't. He should use Coinbase, which he's very happy to do, uh, or Gemini, right? Which we're... And look, you know, the, the thing about OpenSea, and I'm, I'm a little sore because... We, we missed it. Um, <laughs> although I have a friend, I have a friend here in Chapel Hill who is a uh, second or third check-in. And uh, it's not a big amount, but it's now worth a lot. And uh, mm-hmm. he's awesome. He's a, an early adopter in, in ETH. And, and uh, he, I, I'm, you know, like, bravo, awesome. Um, but, you know, we've, we've done a lot in infrastructure, right? That's our thing. That's what we do. And you know, we invested in Coinbase and we invested in Gemini and Gemini, like Gemini bought Nifty Gateway for $1 million. It's awesome. That's, I mean, it's awesome. Nuts. And the guys who sold it thought they were getting a great deal because they had started with nothing. And You know, um, I went to school with them, the, the Cock Fosters. No way. That's yeah, so, we were like one year apart oh, at Emory. That's so awesome. And, yeah. and so, and look, do I think Nifty Gateway is going to be big? Yeah, absolutely. I think the Winklevoss twins are great. Now, the problem for everyone is the lead that OpenSea has created because, and I'll say luck, and, but look, I'm the Thomas Jefferson guy. I'm rather fond of luck. Seems the harder I work, the more of it I seem to have. So uh, I, I think they I love that really quote. Well, it's, it's a great quote, right? It's, it's awesome. I mean, and it's so true. And it's so true. It's so it true. It so resonates with my personal experience. You it's create your own absolutely luck. absolutely true. If you mm-hmm. don't work hard, you will not be in the places to have the luck happen. Now, hey, look, a bolt from the blue, lottery ticket winner, you can still have, now you have to buy the ticket, but most people who are quote-unquote lucky work their ass off. And so I, I, I'm not saying that OpenSea was lucky. What I'm saying is what the luck was that there's no one, even the people who originated Bored Ape and CryptoPunks, they did not 
anticipate how big and how transformational and how potentially increasingly exponentially transformational those communities could be, right? The term social token really didn't even exist. And these community-based organizations didn't really exist. Now we're all kind of understanding it. And actually you guys, Blockworks, right? Put out this great thing, you know, web one, web two, web three. You know, web two is about all these permissioned, you know, big behemoths and Fang Man has been great. But Web3 is about the wallet. So should it surprise anybody that OpenSea just bought a wallet? Because at the end of the day, what, what you want is a community of users and a collective experience that drives right, yeah, more right. volume. And, and look, the only potential competitor, I think, to OpenSea right now is Coinbase. And Coinbase NFT has... At least last number, it's probably higher now, but 1.8 million people on the wait list, myself included. But they haven't figured out the technology yet. They will. But the question is, it's Field of Dreams, and we've talked about this before, Field of Dreams doesn't work in, yeah. in the real world, right? If you build it, they will come. If you sell it, nope. people will buy it. If you like sell that. a brand... Right, people will buy it. If you sell an experience, people will buy it. If you sell a, you know, service relationship, people will buy it. But just having, like I say, a decentralized uh, version doesn't work. You need people. It's it's like security tokens. It's an awesome idea, and I believe every asset, every stock, every bond, every currency, every commodity, every everything will be tokens. But the security token companies and security token exchanges haven't worked because they don't know how to sell like Goldman Sachs knows how to sell to get capital to buy the things. So you mm -hmm. can tokenize all the hotels you want. But if there's nobody to buy it, it doesn't matter. Yep. It's, it's like having the lemonade stand on the wrong corner. Your lemonade could be awesome, but no one cares because they don't see it. Can I give you a couple outside shot prediction things that yeah. I think people are not valuing enough? So you, you brought up uh, Coinbase. I think they are, so uh, Bank of America recently put out a report about them. Uh, they said that their diverse, the diversification of their revenue is going to accelerate. I'm completely on board. They're doing two things that I don't think people are valuing. One, their NFT marketplace, which they've got like 3 million users, right? 3 million, okay, up. except to 3 million. Yeah, All right. it's going to be, I mean, so then- It'll be, you know it'll be huge. Have? It's going to be you know, huge. You, you know what else they have is this wallet, their wallet extension competitor with MetaMask. Yes. People are going to use that. People are going to use it because it's one. I mean, the way that most people, you still have to get fiat into crypto is through an exchange, right? So the process usually goes, I buy ETH on Coinbase, then I send it to my MetaMask, then I do all my on-chain yep. stuff. Now I'm doing all this crazy and bridging into all these different ecosystems. Yep. But it, if you think about it, the Coinbase uh, browser extension, that's just one less step that everyone needs to take. And everyone already trusts Coinbase. People are sleeping on this. People are sleeping totally on it. Totally sleeping on it. The next thing that people are sleeping on is Web2 companies leaning into NFTs. Now, I understand why I'm looking at all these metaverse announcements being like, okay, you're going to open a store in the metaverse. <laughs> okay, uh, that's lame. But, you know, <laughs> let me predict. So what I think Instagram actually, I was listening to this uh, great interview, Kyle uh, and Tushar did with Jason and Santiago yes. yesterday. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they said in this interview, I haven't recognized it, but they were talking about, uh, apparently CEO of Instagram is like, yeah, we're going to do NFTs. That is, so Web2 has the users, man. 
Web2 is the eventually these Web2 companies are going to say yeah. we have to do something about Web2. Yeah, but they're not going to win. Undecided. I agree. Yeah, I agree with win. you. But but they will do something in the interim to bring their users over. Of course over. they will. Of course, but but they're not going to win because incumbents never do it right. Yeah, they never because they can never they can't, fully because they can't it. they can't jeopardize their existing business model. I use this I example: ABC, NBC, CBS. Right? They had all the market cap, all the users, all the boomers. We all watched the three networks, <laughs> and they all their market cap, literally all their market cap, went to Netflix. Yeah, because people like you stream. Can I even even more than that? So there was an exchange that went back and forth between um, Brian Chesky, CEO of Air, uh, Airbnb, and the guy who's the founder of Box, whose name is escaping me now. Yep. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, there's pictures getting thrown on Twitter, and they're kind of mocking Web three, right? They're 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 but but they're doing it in this way, which is like, yeah, why don't I just like. Uh, you know, make all these decisions open to everyone. Wouldn't that be such a great idea? Look, I do think there's a pro I don't believe in a fully democratic voting process. Uh, I, there are limits to decentralization as a form of effective governance. But what I will say is that put yourself in the shoes of a Web2 founder. What are the problems that you're trying to solve? How do you view the world? You view Web2 has been a game of aggregation. You aggregate as many people as you can in, a most, in the most efficient way possible, and you either sell them ads or you connect them via transactions. Platform business model, ad business model. But it's all about efficiency, centralization, aggregation. That's how they look out into the world. These are the problems that business needs to solve. Web3 looks at the world in a very different way. They say, that is the problem. And it, it's not even, I, I mean, like the reinforcing thing, right? You solve problem, it makes you money. That's reinforcing on a psychological level. It, it, it's hard to break break apart. Hey, this is just making me money. It, it literally blinds you to seeing the world through a different lens and a different set of problems. I don't know. It was a really instructive. I'll, I'll see if I can get a picture here or link in the. No, show. no, look, not... you're exactly right. And, and and here's the the ultimate the ultimate problem, right? Which is Web two was genius in that they took a free service, right? TCP IP mm -hmm. and, and HTTP and SMTP and all these, these free protocols. And they built apps on top of those protocols and they gave them away to aggregate a community. The audience, yeah. yeah. An audience, right? And users. Then they found ways to monetize by basically collecting a thing, data, right? Imagine, right, all these people post pictures on Facebook, like for free. They're doing the work, right? They're posting and they're showing you where they live and what they like and what they value and all these things. And you can now with technology, analyze all that and get incredible insights to make marketing work. Right? I love the fact yeah. I was talking to my son the other day, talking out loud about something and an ad pops up on my phone. And like, it was, oh, that's so, so weird. So like, I kind of like it because I was going to buy it and now I don't have to go search for it. It's right there. So, but that's not the future. The future is we, the users of any asset, I mean, any service, any, anything, our attention is our property. Our buying habits are our property. Our uh, need for whatever that, that service is, is ours, right? If you're a driver and I'm a rider, 
The people who wrote code 10 years ago don't deserve 30%. We, the community, and I agree that we don't want the, the masses, the horde, making the, the decisions of the company, right? I'm a big believer investment community should be an odd right. number and three is too many, right? I'm a big believer in centralized decision-making and leadership. Good <laughs> leaders are, are worth, that's my favorite line. Um, that's, it took me two seconds. Yeah, that's great. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. And three is too many. So ultimately, and we got to go, but the, the reality is Web3 is going to be monstrous, monstrous. Said it's the exponential growth part that people just can't wrap their head around. And it's because we, the communities, are going to take back that revenue and profit. And it's too hard for Instagram or Facebook or anyone else to give up these big advertising-based revenue models to go to this new world. I don't think they can do it. And maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I don't think they can do it. And that's why I'm, we invest in the actual Web3 companies. I'm fully in your camp, fully in your camp. All right, I know we've got to go here. Mark, this has been a ton of fun. What a great way to start the new year. Oh, such a, a good way, such a good yeah. way. And um, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity as always. I, I enjoy, it's the best hour of my week. And uh, Me too. So have a good one. All right, cheers, my friend. Thanks. I'll see you next week. All right.